0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to um, New Books Network. This is Shu Wan, the host of the um, Disability Study channel. Today, I will feel very happy to invite Dr. Capri to join us to introduce her newest book, No Good Enough, Canada. So my first question today for Dr. Capurri is that uh, to invite you to introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Like My name is uh, Valentina Kapuri and I teach in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Toronto Metropolitan University in Toronto. Uh, former name was Ryerson University, but it just changed last year, and like I'm my background is actually not totally in geography. I have a uh, MA in geography, but like my uh, most, like, like most, my, my expertise, sorry, is mostly in history. So I have a BA, an MA and a doctorate in history. So like, uh, that's why like uh, in this particular book, like I deal a lot with the history of the Immigration Act
0: because history is something that is very dear to me. Thank you, Thank you so much. So for next question, I'm wondering a reason why you take interest in the promising field of like history of disease and the disabilities.
1: Yes. So like my interest in uh, disability studies uh, started like mostly because of personal reasons. So I am a, per- a person that has like uh, multiple sclerosis, as I uh, clarify in the-, in the text as well. And like I went through uh, a lot of challenges, like uh, I'm also an immigrant. So I went through a lot of challenges when as an immigrant, I applied to uh, be accepted to Canada. And that's when I became aware for the first time of these provisions that existed in the Canadian Immigration Act concerning, like, persons with illnesses or disabilities. And that's what, like, propelled my, like, uh, my interest to look more into it and figure out what's wrong there.
0: Thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's turn to your book. So for your book, my first question is that I want to watch you talk about the methodology and the terminology of your book. And the situation of people with mental or physical disability within Western and especially Canadian society.
1: Yes, uh, thanks for your question. So yes, when I started like doing research on this topic, uh, I use like for a portion of the book, like uh, a lot of secondary sources that are available more in general on the subject of persons with disabilities and how they are framed within the Western society and particularly within the Canadian context. So there is a lot of material, excellent material, that has been published throughout the years that elucidate exactly how persons with disabilities are seen and perceived. However, when it came more specifically to the issue of immigrants with disabilities, I had a lot of more challenges because it's not a subject that has been studied very much. So like in that case, I mostly relied on original sources, on primary sources. So I went through like a document. I researched like uh, the newspaper issues that were published throughout the period I'm focusing on. I look at like a document, like published at the government level, like uh, uh, not only like uh, Uh, answered that is like the the debate that took place in the house of Commons and senate of canada but also all the different reports that were published by different committees and so on in terms of the language that i use in the text i just want to make a brief clarification because i do understand that like in disability studies like uh, we we'll like to make clear that there is a difference between persons with illnesses and persons with uh, disabilities. So they're not necessarily the same. But in my text, I'm using them, the two terms interchangeably, uh, simply because in the legislation, in the Canadian legislation, uh, they are dealt in as if they are part of the same group. So it's a question just like uh, to. To make sure, like that we uh, understand, like the how the legislation evolves through time by considering these two groups are as belonging to the same category. So I'm, it's not that I'm not aware that the there are differences uh, between uh, persons with illnesses and persons with disabilities. Although sometimes the two categories overlap. But like in the particular legislations, they are dealt with as if they are the same category. So that's why I use that kind of understanding.
0: Okay. Thanks so much for your answer. So for the next question, I'm wondering about a public discourse developed developed by federal politicians.
1: Yes, so I look at the um, way the public discourse developed by politicians at the federal level. So Canada is obviously a federal country. I did not actually have time to look at the provincial level, but it was not really relevant because immigration in Canada is the purview of the federal government. So I focus exclusively on what came out of federal politicians in that sense. And uh, I look at a fairly long period of time, like from 1902 all, all, all the way to 2002. So it's a fairly long period of time to examine how the these languages evolve. So what is like the uh, discourse that was developed by federal politicians throughout this period of time? And I found it like uh, fairly like uh, interesting, like that. Uh, as can be expected, there are very significant changes, like language that was used a long time ago, then it became gradually problematic and after becoming problematic became unacceptable. So for instance, I found many issues where individuals with disabilities are like uh, um, defining in very demeaning terms in the initial registration. So persons with mental disabilities define like idiots on many many occasions. so this is obviously a language that would not be under, uh, acceptable at all today but this change happens very gradually to time so like uh, it, it is a it is a work in progress how like the language uh, it's modified in terms of like the approach that federal politicians have had to the issue of immigrants with disabilities coming to Canada, my understanding by looking at the document is that uh, their point of view was like uh, uh, mostly based on economic consideration. And so like, uh, their assessment of individuals coming to Canada is mainly based on the economic potential that these individuals have. And, like, uh, in the past, uh, for a long period of time, at least until, like, the 70s, uh, I've noticed that, like, uh, there was this understanding that persons with disabilities, a priori, couldn't be good economic subject because they are faulty, they are unemployable. So, there is no benefit of accepting these people into Canada. This thing gradually changed in the late 60s, early seventies, also as a response to uh, changes in society. Um, I'm, I, I believe, like probably the audience is familiar with the fact that throughout the 60s and seventies, like there was, like there were movement. Uh, people with disability themselves, like uh, took matters in their own hand to like uh, change the perception that society had of them, and these also reflect in uh, uh, the understanding of politicians so gradually these like definition of persons with disabilities as like worthless subject because they are unemployable came uh, to uh, to be dropped but in uh, Conjunction with this is not that the situation of persons with disability improved. It remained very problematic because at that point in Canada, we started to develop Medicare. That is like a system where like a free uh, a free like a visit to hospital and to diagnostic like a visit like a for uh, anyone residing in Canada that is a permanent resident or a citizen. And this obviously cost the government because if like people are not paying of their own pocket, it's because the cost is covered by the government. At that point, the argument became no longer, that immigrants with disabilities were unacceptable because they were unemployable it becomes well no now they are unacceptable because even if they are employable they are like going to need visits to the hospital medical care way more often than the regular population, so they are an excessive cost, and the term that was used and actually is used to these days is they are uh, they put an excessive burden on
0: the system. Thank you so much for answer again. So for the next question, I'm going to invite you to talk about whether opinion expressed on Ottawa reflects the public. Namely, individual and the group who managed to have their views recorded in two major Ontario newspapers, the Globe, Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Star.
1: Yes. So what happened here is that uh, I wanted to check whether, like, what politicians were discussing, like uh, behind doors in Ottawa, had any impact on the way society was perceiving these changes. And because the input of common peoples are not necessarily like uh, available and many of these people are dead, so I couldn't go and interview them, I had to rely on what was contained in like uh, newspapers, not only in uh, newspapers articles, but also like on letters that like people wrote to the editors, to the newspaper, to comment on stories that were popular particular point in time. Now, I do am aware that the people that have access to newspapers and have the time to send letters to newspaper it's like not necessarily representative of the entire population. But I thought that at least it was enough to give us a general idea of what was the perception in the public. And so what i found out what i discovered is that like um, particularly in the initial period so in the periods that goes like from 1902 when this system of medical inspection inspections was established all the way to like the late 70s early 80s um, at the time like the population was very much behind the government Uh, What I noticed, though, is that like, although the people seem to be, by and large, behind the government, they tend to disagree when particular cases come to the attention. And I think that's a normal reaction that people may have. If you talk abstractly about persons with disabilities, well, you cannot put a face into it. So people say, yeah, if they are an economic burden, yeah, they should be kept out. But then if you see a particular story, if you are alerted about a specific individual, and you get to know through the newspaper that person, people start to feel bad and say, oh, wow, like I didn't know, like this is an individual. Like they start to relate to the individual in specific and then they start to say, okay, then I don't think like the government is totally right in banning this person. Like this is like a a, a human being. so there is this, this interesting dynamic that goes on through like newspaper reporting, where you see that when the case is very general, when we are talking generally about the legislation, then people say, OK, like the government know better. Like, I don't want to deal with it. It's not my problem. I don't have like a, a direct interest in it. But then if, like, individual cases pop up here and there, particularly those cases that are heartbreaking. So if you read that, like, a family is going to be separated, that, like, the child is not allowed to follow the parents in Canada because the child has a disability, people feel very emotional. They think, oh, no, like, that's not right. Like, why are we separating families? So that's pretty much what I noticed like through uh, my investigation.
0: Thank you so much for your answer. For the question, I want to invite you to talk about legislative cases of rejected immigrants who questioned the government's action by taking their case to a court.
1: Yeah, so like uh, the this section that deals with the legislative cases is actually, I don't look to the whole period. I mostly focus to the cases that have come up in canada since the mid 80s uh, for like a us audience maybe you're not familiar with it but in 1985 uh, canada like uh, uh, brought back the constitution from uh, from Britain, and added a Charter of Rights and Freedom, and one article, Article 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedom, uh, provides non-discrimination against particular equity groups, such as on the basis of gender, ethnic status, and also disability. So that's what I wanted to find out if this clause, the fact that persons with disabilities are protected group in Canada, had any impact in how people were perceiving this uh, this policy that, in my point of view, at least was discriminatory towards individuals with disabilities because just because you have a disability, you are not allowed to enter Canada. So I want to look at like court cases that were brought forward during this period. Uh, I also want to clarify that mostly I look at federal court cases and two court cases instead reach the Supreme Court, that is the maximum um, uh, judicial organ in Canada. I don't know about like cases that were like dismissed before. reaching the federal stage, so I'm not aware of how many cases were brought in that that situation. Uh, What I've noticed, and I was a little bit surprised when I started to do this investigation, is that uh, in many, many instances, actually in all of them except one, the uh, plaintiff, so the people that are uh, bringing the case to court, were not actually uh, bringing the charter into play. So they were not saying like, look, this policy is a breach of the charter because it discriminates against persons with disabilities. They were only actually uh, contesting the decision saying, look, it's an error because I don't really fit because I'm not really a big expense or because my child is not really too costly for the state. So I found that like uh, kind of interesting, the fact that instead of um, attacking the decision because it was unconstitutional in the sense that was uh, breaching like uh, the article 15 of the charter, they uh, take a totally different route and say like, oh, it's not, it's not that I'm contesting the legislation per se, I'm just contesting how it is applied to my case, to my individual case. And like, uh, for example, like among these cases, there, are, there is one that uh, I, I just want to mention if I, if I have a moment, is the the uh, Jong case. Uh, this is like an immigrant from the Netherlands. Uh, at the end of the 90s beginning of the 2000s and he contested the decision because what happened the, the young john decided to immigrate to canada and bring his family and the daughter like the young daughter was like not accepted because had a mental disability and the point was like the decision stayed it's gonna be an excessive burden it's gonna cost too much to pay for her social services. And the reason why the young, like, uh, oppose this legislation and goes, like, to the federal court is not, like, uh, claiming, oh, this is discriminating against a person with a disability. His argument is, as I was mentioning a a moment ago, is simply, oh, no, no, like, I can pay. I have enough resources, I can pay for my daughter. So. You can keep your legislation, that's totally fine. I'm just contesting you applying this legislation to me in particular, because I do have the financial resources. And there is in the chapter like a whole discussion on whether or not like uh, considering like the economic like abilities of immigrants should actually come into play. Because it's kind of like tricky uh, at this point. Like if you say like you can only come if you can pay for your expenses, like it, it's kind of a you are automatically excluding people that have a low economic background that won't be able to cover these expenses. It's also problematic because once you are in Canada, then you are entitled to a free health care by the state. So you cannot say, oh, yeah, but I signed to pay on my own. Once you are a Canadian, why you, once you are accepted, then like uh, you follow the rules of everyone else. So even if you are a millionaire, you can benefit from like a public the public healthcare system. So there are all these issues. Another case that I want to mention is instead the the one that uh, uh, did not go this route. Go, went exactly the opposite route is the Chester case, Angela Chester. Uh, She contested the legislation not because it didn't apply to her situation, but because she says it's unconstitutional. It violates the Charter of Rights and Freedom because it discriminates against a person with a disability. The Tinder case was an illness because Angela Chester, similar to me, had multiple sclerosis. And like, uh, what happens here is I found very very problematic the mm, the final decision reached by the judge so the judge uh, decided against miss chester so like she she did not like win her case because the argument was well it's not that we are discriminating against persons with disabilities so we are not breaching the charter we are discriminating against people that are an excessive burden on the state that are like costing the state too much that I think is very disingenuous as an explanation because this excessive demand only and exclusively applies to persons with disability and illnesses so you cannot tell me that is a question of like um, excessive demand only it's a question of excessive demand that is only asked vis-a-vis persons with disabilities For instance, when someone comes to immigrate to Canada, they do not check if the person is a heavy smoker. Now, we know that smoking is bad for your health. So if you smoke heavily, chances are that eventually, as you progress with the years, you will need more medical care. You may develop asthma. You may develop like respiratory problems. You can even develop lung cancer. So it is a big problem. And yet, like, no one asks these questions of heavy smokers. We only ask these questions for people that have either illnesses or medical disabilities. And that's what I found, like, quite
0: problematic. Okay, thanks so much for your answer again. So for our last question today, I want to invite you to talk about your argument that provision of medical admissibility is unfair and is requirementary.
1: Yes, so like this is pretty much connected to the last part of my previous answer. So I think it's very discriminatory because it's a requirement that is exclusively applied to a group of people that have been already discriminated quite widely in Canadian society. And this is like persons with disabilities or illnesses. Again, it's a um, the government will tell you, if you ask, that there is a medical officer that will investigate whether or not your disability is in fact creating a burden. So it's not an um, automatic exclusion. But that's not the reality. If you look at like how the uh, medical officers proceed, It's automatic that the moment you classify with an illness or a disability, they will not let you in, in Canada. They will not give you like a permit just to give like a clear example. So people can, can visualize, I have multiple sclerosis, as I mentioned, and I have a mild form of multiple sclerosis. So like uh, I, um, I can function pretty well, like, uh, Obviously I have some issues, like I get tired very easily and so on, but this has not prevented me from like having a job in Canada. So I've been in Canada for over 20 years. And like um, since I finished my doctorate, I work continuously, like every single year. Like So it's not that I took time off because I cannot work. It's not that I spend uh, excessive amount of money in the healthcare system because like I've never spent like time in hospital, for example, for multiple sclerosis. I don't use like social services. And yet I was automatically banned because someone decided like in when I applied that because I have MS, chances are very high that I'm gonna be a burden on the on the state. That has not been the case. So, just to give you an idea of how, like, although they say this is not an automatic exclusion, it's a case-by-case basis, that's not the truth because, like, they do automatically exclude people because they assume that because you have a certain illness or a certain disability, you will create problem for the state. And I think that's very, very problematic. It's not only problematic for immigrants, by the way, obviously it's dramatic for immigrants with disabilities because they are uh, not accepted. But like is also like quite sends a wrong message to Canadians with disabilities as well. So pretty much if you are a Canadian with a disability, what is the message you get from this legislation? That yes, your state tolerates you because unfortunately you are born here. But in reality, were you to come from the outside, they would gladly shut the door in your face. They will not accept you. So it's very, very problematic in that case as well. I also want to clarify like one last point, like uh, uh, if I have, if you give me a moment, is like, because people may wonder, well, if you told us that you have a disability and that they have excluded you, how come that you are in Canada? Well, I am in Canada because, like, uh, whereas they rejected me when I applied as an independent, saying that I was a burden, uh, they had to accept me eventually uh, because I applied, like, uh, as the spouse of a Canadian citizen. And because, like, the latest um, Immigration Refugee Protection Act uh, passed in 2002, has established that if you are the spouse or the child of a Canadian resident, a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, they have to accept you. That's why I mean, like I was accepted as the spouse of a Canadian citizen. But otherwise, like had I exclusively applied as an independent, they would not have accepted me into Canada.
0: Okay. Thanks so much for your answer today. I'm very appreciate. It. So at the end of our talk, I want to directly touch our audience. So for listeners, if I uh, if you have any interest in either history of past and present of immigration of disability and disease, especially in North America, uh, or you just like me, you are and or Doctor Kapuri, you are immigrant scholars. I think I highly recommend you consider to read her fantastic book, No Good Enough Canada. It's a one of the best books about this topic. As a disability historian, I want to say, and immigrant, his scholar, I learned a lot from reading this fantastic research. So at the end of our episode today, I want to repeat the title of this book, No Good Enough Canada. So please consider buying a copy of this fantastic book research. So thank you for your listening.